0: Good morning, good afternoon wherever you are in the world and welcome to the next edition of Dream Reality with Aiden Consulting. This is a podcast series where we talk to some experts, change makers, innovators, disruptors and generally people who have a strong opinion because we love an opinion. This last 18 months has been um, tough, changeable, you know, disruptive for most of us, whether it be the move to online, whether it be the way that we engage with family and friends, pretty much everything has changed. And we're quite uncomfortable with change as human beings. But really, we've really embraced it. We've embraced it. And now let's see how we can keep that going. This is also a period of opportunity. and. That's who we're trying to talk to. People who see this as a period of of opportunity, see this as a way of changing things for the better moving forward. And today I am really excited to have May with us. She was um, a professional lawyer that moved into venture capitalism. She was a venture partner, and then now has again transitioned to become a professional leadership coach and personal development coach. And she's currently based in Sydney in Australia and has a truly global clientele and network. And so we're really excited and very happy to have you here with us today. May, please go ahead and tell us a little bit about your journey.
1: Thanks so much, Alison. It's a real pleasure to to join you in this Zoom room and uh, really excited to to share a little bit about my experiences. And thanks again for, for having me on the podcast. Um, My yeah, my experience is a little bit uh, of a global experience, but it all started here in Sydney. So I was born and bred um, here in Australia. My parents are actually Persian, so they emigrated from Iran, um, first generation Australian, and I had a really wonderful childhood, Um, got to experience the Australian education system, really grateful for being able to explore a lot of my passions, but Early on, I remember falling in love with the idea of giving others a voice and helping empower others. And at the time, um, as a young teenager, I heard about human rights law and you know the le- legal system and was really excited to go out and be a social justice warrior. And I learned that um, going to law school was one way of kind of following that passion and making sure that I could kind of honor that purpose. So that's kind of what took me to to law school. I I reveled in um, government, international relations. I spent a year in New York City. um, And really, it was actually when I was in New York City um, on exchange at NYU that I was introduced to concepts around social innovation, social entrepreneurship. This is when these terms were not as overused as they are now. They were kind of very nascent and exciting. And I really fell in love again, um, lots of falling in love you'll see on my journey with this idea of rather than, um, you know, giving people a handout, giving them a hand up and using business as a tool for social empowerment and social change. Now, at the time, I'd already signed on to come and work with a judge here in our Supreme Court um, and at, at a corporate law firm. So I came back to Australia and had the opportunity to do that. But I really couldn't brush this off. Um, And so in my kind of call up my five to nine after hours, I was always working with startups on the ground. I was doing a lot of pro bono work, um, working with international consultancies for social enterprises and really any opportunity to, to be in that world um, and there was some point at which my, nine, my five to nine had to become my nine to five. Um, and you know, I, I go back to the quote of Stephen Covey, the, the author of Seven Habits of Highly Effective um, People. And he says, uh, the main thing is to keep the main thing, the main thing. And my main thing <laughs> was no longer my main thing. And so I had to, to kind of shift that. Um, Now, I had the the opportunity to then go off with the help of the Monash Foundation here in Australia um, to the Harvard Kennedy School. And I spent a couple of years doing my my master's in public policy there and really understanding how do we spark um, innovation? How does social innovation work? How do we how does social entrepreneurship um, become a way that we can solve entrenched economic and social problems and i had the opportunity during that um stage to really go off to california and spend some time in the world of of innovation and and kind of tech entrepreneurship and again that's where the third love affair began um, with technology as a tool for social change and this is at the time when companies like uber and airbnb were starting to take off we were seeing kind of Very unsexy, highly regulated industries like housing, transportation, education, health, um, all starting to see kind of startups and technologies being able to be used in new ways. And um, I became really interested in marrying this interest with you know how do we um, you know how do we create regulatory financial, and business environments that allow these kinds of organizations to thrive. And so that was really the beginning of my journeys into venture capital, um, impact investing, where I spent a couple of years at the Urban Innovation Fund, um, You know, w- along with two other female partners launching the Urban Innovation Fund and investing in early stage companies that were shaping the future of cities, whether it's mobility to digital health. And what I realized during that experience was I loved working with founders. I loved working with people who were bringing their life's purpose um, alive through a business. Mm -hmm. And you know, where there was such passion and you would see these founder CEOs building teams and real opportunity. And I also realized some of the limitations of venture capital, which was that you're often, even though we are investing in the person, and the, you know, the, the market opportunity, um, there's a limitation as an investor, the extent to which you can really uh, be part of the individual's life. And so I'll give you an example. There was times where we would be working with our founders to, to make sure that they're finding product market fit, um, kind of a you know, buzzword we use in venture capital to make sure the product or service that they're creating has um, some traction in the market, people actually want it. and you know, we'd be looking at, are they going to raise their next um, round of capital? Um, Have they hired the right person? So, you know, really important questions, but not often looking at the bigger picture, which is what's going on in the life of the person in front of us? What's going on at home? Are they getting enough sleep? What's their mental health condition like at the moment? Do they have imposter syndrome? Mm -hmm. What's their mental fitness like? And these questions were kind of seen as irrelevant or a bit of a distraction, but I became really interested in them because I realized they were highly correlated to whether a business was doing well, whether the founder was doing well, and in terms of not only peak performance, but also well-being. Um, Now, around this time, I actually had an opportunity to get onto the entrepreneur side of things. So one of my mentors was in town in um, California, and essentially I was having breakfast one day and was said, May, Do you want an opportunity to help build a digital platform for education um, where we're essentially providing civics and citizenship education for teachers and all around the world um, so they can use this tool for their young people? Now, it was one of those um, moments where I (laughs) kind of said yes and I'll figure it out later. I wanted more experience working um, on products and building things. I knew as a lawyer, And as an investor, I had a lot of experience providing a service, but I didn't have that founder empathy, the entrepreneur empathy that I think makes for really good investors or really good advisors. So I was able to do that for a couple of years, had the pleasure of working internationally since 2018, um, being a bit of a digital nomad, uh, going off to different conferences and being part of a global team at an organization called High Resolves. Mm -hmm. And as part of that experience, Another thing that I learned, which was kind of pulling the thread that I noticed as an investor, that being a really effective manager, building te- we were building kind of nimble teams um, across different groups, across different geographies, was that being a coach-like manager, bringing the best out of someone by allowing them to see their own best self, um, and also not making someone dependent on you as a manager, allowing them to really step into their potential. That is how I um, wanted to lead. And it got me really interested in the world of coaching. Now, I i had hired my own coach. Um, I started to do some training courses. And really, what I saw was in, in coaching, which is um, in and of itself, a, a whole world was an opportunity to combine my passion for empowering people, which started all the you know way back when I wanted right. to Originally, become a lawyer, um, and also enabling um, us to empower people not just to to live their best lives, but if they want to bring their ideas to life through a business, if they need the courage to to leave a job that's not working for them, um, this was a tool to do it. And what I was really drawn to, and what I'm really drawn to, is that ability to have deep impact on an individual level, because when you have deep impact at an individual level, that can then benefit from that. And so I've been working a couple of years, working with executives, um, leaders, founders, and entrepreneurs to make sure that they're tapping in to their best selves and they're able to bring to life what is important to them. Um, and really, it's I, I see my purpose as inspiring others to live a life of purpose. Um, and I'm really driven by my authenticity um, and also curiosity just innate curiosity for the human condition
0: so I think that what it what is really um, interesting is the fact that you've had an amazing journey and you're very very self-aware even um, it seems at a very early stage in your life and you're very driven by purpose and kind of your values linked to that. And that's how you've allowed it to shape your career. And I think that what is really, really interesting for me, having done a number of um, of these discussions for dream reality is that mm-hmm. that is the common theme. So inadvertently, and the people I have chosen were based on their areas of expertise. And some of them, I didn't know their history and how they got to that, mm-hmm. that place. But it's, it's very interesting that that seemed, that's really a very strong common theme on how people with their perspective of life and the way that they think about their future and think about themselves really has molded and shaped their actual working life to be in mm-hmm. line with that. And I, I think that that's, that's very interesting with the way that people maybe uh, approach life. So, Moving into um, some of the the questions, I mean, you've moved into, you know, you've made some quite distinct, uh, maybe career pivots or career advancements. I think, you know, maybe it would, uh, I don't know that you would really class them as pivots because they're all somewhat interlinked in some way. But as you've moved into the coaching sphere, coaching, you know, Four, three, four years ago, really wasn't as big as it is now. And it seems that it, you know, it's really taken off. And do you think that there's more of a pull from individuals or is it still kind of a push from HR? And by a push from HR, sometimes it's for the career development of an individual, for certain positions, for talent management. And sometimes it's to fix perceived problems. And how do, you, how do you see that evolution or how do you see that playing out? Yeah, it's a really good
1: question, Alison. I think that it's certainly true that coaching as a field, as a profession has definitely come a long way in the last years. Um, I think there are a couple of trends going on that are shaping kind of the dynamics that we're seeing. So the first is to your point, I think traditionally, coaching has been something that, um, you know, executives understood to be as part of their organization. Um, You know, some very few people had access to it. And it was often also seen as remedial, right? So we've got problems. We need to get them fixed. Let's outsource it to a coach. Maybe they'll listen to someone external. I think that's changed a lot. Coaching now, at least in my experience, working with individuals and organizations um, and all the kind of everything in between, is that coaching um, is something that you earn um, as a result of being coachable, having growth mindset, right? Coaching is something that is given to those who see potential for advancement, for acceleration, who show a willingness to be reflective and explore, go go into their inner world as well. Um, So that's the first thing that's going on. I think secondly, we see that um, as a profession, it's simply become professionalized. Um, Now, you know, I've been part of the venture capital profession, the legal profession. Some of these are highly regulated. Coaching is a profession which, um, you know, you could do... Uh, an overnight course and call yourself a coach, or you could get hundreds of hours of training with a lot of supervision over a course of a couple of years and call yourself a coach. And so what we're seeing is bodies like the International Coaching Federation that have designations, paths to become certified coaches. You've got codes of ethics now um, really heavily uh, being espoused in the profession. You've got um, bodies such as the um, Harvard's Institute of Coaching that bring a scientific rig- rigor to coaching, um, bringing in kind of the links to neuroscience, um, You know, looking at the impacts of coaching, how do you measure the return on investment that organizations make? These trends are certainly um, giving a lot of credibility to the coaching prof- profession. Um, and I think that's a really good thing. We want to be able to make distinctions based on um, who is a coach and who is not? Um, what does it mean that they have certain level of accreditation? And, you know, the third trend that I would see is that people are seeing um, the need for more holistic support in their life. So we're used to bringing in experts, like we want to build muscles. So at the gym, we get a personal trainer because that's what they know how to do. We want to be able to eat better. We might get a dietitian on board. Um, We want to be able to, um, you know, heal wounds. We bring on a psychologist, Mm -hmm. So there are these amazing experts and professionals out there that can help us. Now, coaching is a broad profession and a lot of coaches specialize, but generally as a modality, um, coaching is the one place that often the whole person is recognized. So, we're able to work with their professional life, their personal life, their their dreams, their hopes, their fears, their aspirations. And I think that during the pandemic as well, there's been more of an appetite for this, kind of the come to Jesus moment of why am I here? What am I doing? What's the purpose of life? And what do I want out of my life? And so you've got a lot of people reaching out to coaches, um, kind of given what's been going on in that regard. I think the last trend that we're seeing is that you've got a lot of research that's happening um, in the background that's measuring the impact of different types of interventions. And one of the most um, powerful pieces of research that I've seen is coming through the work around positive intelligence. And what that tells us is that our mental fitness is what dictates our peak performance uh, the quality of our relationships and our well-being, and the research around this um, is is really powerful because it says that if we can understand the ways we hold ourselves back, you know, our saboteurs, um, the ways that we hijack ourselves, and the ways in which we go into, um, you know, left brain thinking, the amygdala, the flight, fl- fright, freeze response versus our prefrontal cortex. So, how do we shift to, from the left brain to the right brain? happening into our curiosity, our empathy, our creativity and powers of innovation and action, um, this is something that we can actually train ourselves to do. The brain is very neuroplastic, it can change and evolve, and that's a really good thing. And so coaching has been seen as a tool in which to reap the benefits of the malleability of the brain and having someone by you that can can help you um, kind of move in that direction. Um, I really believe in the power of transformation that can come from coaching. So the thing is around coaching, I think another trend we're seeing is that you don't have to be necessarily a full-time professional coach. If coaching is an approach, a tool, we can actually teach some of the skills that make an effective coach to our teachers, Mm -hmm. to parents, to all kinds of managers, um, to therapists even. And so we can be coach-like in all of our relationships. We can be more curious. We can ask more quest, powerful questions and we can actually empower people to get to their own answers. And generally you've got kind of a number of trends as, as we kind of discussed that are allowing this to happen.
0: Wow, yeah, so much to think about there. And I, th- I, I think that, you know, go touching back, I mean, you've definitely answered my next question, which was, you know, about you know coaches are such a buzzword and there's you know there's mm. so many people calling themselves coaches but as you say you know the regulation has really kind of come in the certification and the ethics so which makes it so much easier now to find a really well qualified coach and to help you make that decision but i think one of the things that you you touched on there is you know over this last 18 months in the period of change and people are really re-evaluating where they're at. And from an entrepreneurial side, the number of startups um, has really increased almost threefold compared okay. to pre-pandemic. And you know, that has been put down to, you know, people have been put on furlough and they're sitting at home and they're like, do you know, maybe that nine to five with the two hour commute, I don't know that I want to do that anymore. Mm. I've always dreamt of having a company that makes the most amazing bed linen or fixing that, you know, having something to do with with the local school and fixing this online, you know, school platform and you know, trying to get rid of the, the class dojos and the seesaws and the other applications that that the schools are using, that, you know, every parent in the world I think today is crying over. So do you, do you see that as well as something that comes up time and again when you're having conversations? Is this going to be a trend that's going to continue, or something that you think is just specific to this pandemic period?
1: Yeah, it's a it's certainly something that I I'm seeing as well, um, generally and specifically. Generally, in that I'm you know it's something I'm noticing both in the U.S. and Australia, the two mm-hmm. main geographies that. but of course there's been so much loss and hardship and it's been an extremely devastating time for many and not to not to at all devalue that um, but the blessing that's come from kind of having a, a, a way of being being kind of completely shook up is that we've had to stop and pause and think was the way that we were working working for us Right. And I think for many professionals, um, for many family members, that has meant kind of really looking themselves in the mirror and thinking, what is it that's really important to me and how can I honor that? And for many professionals, that is to actually take that leap and finally do what it is that they want to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And it could be a nascent idea, it could be a way of improving something that isn't working. Um, For many, it's some kind of business idea that don't know what it's going to look like yet. And so you have a lot of uh professionals, particularly those working in corporate and larger firms, who are starting businesses. Yeah. And um, actually a, b- a big part of the clientele I work with are first-time founders who are launching businesses, whose businesses are often a manifestation of their life purpose. It's kind of, this is this is my thing, I want to make this big, I want to be doing this forever. And that question of, if not now, when? Like it's taken a global pandemic for me to reevaluate and you, we just see the gig economy really on the rise. Um, firstly, as a means to initially survive, as you mentioned, and people that were furloughed or, or generally kind of laid off, um, not given enough hours, a lot of these workers have gone off and started their own businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, I had great examples when I was living in San Francisco during the kind of peak of the pandemic, and for most of 2020, you would have um, the you know gym instructors who would be usually employed by large gym chains who are starting their own businesses. Yeah. Um, you would have massage therapists who were traditionally being employed by you know different companies starting their own companies, and so you have a lot of workers now incorporating their own businesses, or working as sole traders. And actually, the gig economy is growing in that regard. And I think that that is going to be something that continues far beyond the end of the pandemic. And it's not specific to just technology startups. We're certainly seeing there, we're seeing a lot more money going into technology startups from a venture capital perspective. Um, Really interestingly, 2020, um, was the second largest year for in terms of venture capital for funds deployed. So it was about 141 billion dollars in investment deployed from venture capital firms, which is huge Bonkers. initially. Yeah. Initially, people thought that, well, with the pandemic, this is the year where we'll have recorrections. But actually, we just had more money going in to more startups being formed. And then there are a lot of small, medium-sized businesses and the sole traders that are not after external capital, but shouldn't be overlooked because they're certainly contributing to and fueling the economy as well.
0: Yeah. That's that's a really good point, and I think you know. We'll, um I'm a little bit conscious of the time, but I just have a couple more questions for you. Um, Please. you know, a few weeks ago, I spoke to um a new startup that was based in the US, Um Own Trail, and the founders there they were very clear that when they went for for funding, they were very clear on who they would partner with for that funding, and because they they wanted to match. The values and and the purpose with the beliefs of you know whoever was, uh, was going to become involved in their in their startup. And I think that as well here in Ireland, um it's quite hard to get investment if you are female. So less than 2% of the yeah. funding goes to female founders here in Ireland. So you see a lot more, and um, there's a few more funds that are female specific starting mm. up here and then you have the aspect of you know maybe you know does it have to be female or should we be looking at will there be funds starting up that are dedicated to certain concepts and certain uh, social purpose and you see a few of those starting up in in london and for sure in the us but the ones i'm aware of are are more london based do you mm. think that um as this momentum of investment and startups continues, which you know, we hope it's going to continue, do you think you're going to start to see some of the, um, the investment firms and the funds be more specific and niche and focus on, you know is it social enterprise? Is it more of a social contribution? Is it a certain demograph of founders? Do you see that going to become more, more and more common? Or is that just something that is going to bring up to a little bit more of a level playing field? Yeah, it's a something
1: I'm very passionate about, <laughs> um, which is providing equal access to founders, mm-hmm. to external capital. Um, I Unfortunately, the, the statistic, Alison, that you mentioned in Ireland is about the same as what you see in the US and the rest of the world.
0: I thought we were just terrible okay yeah that's, that's even more shocking
1: so, so one of, exactly and so one of the really unfortunate and shocking statistics that came out of the pandemic 2020 um is that less than two or about two percent of venture capital money went to female founders mm-hmm. and this went down this was from what was 2019 so actually Um, The fact that that's going down over time in a year where, you know, a lot of um, consciousness is being raised around diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. Black Lives Matter is, you know, really um, seeing the light of day last year with Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the horrific things we were seeing on the streets of the US. Um, And so you've got like these movements that are happening. Now, female founders have been... um, unfortunately, left behind for many years, right? So this is not a new story. I think when I was a investor full time, um, this is something that I was spending a lot of time on, organizations that had been formed to particularly cater to women, whether it was expat women. So there was literally an organization called the Expat Woman that would have mm-hmm. events just for them. There was a uh, so I, I've been associated with an organization doing incredible work around the world called, called Women of Mena in Tech. So for women in the Middle East, North Africa, you've got um, all kinds of denominations. You've got funds that are being established just for women, for yeah. Black founders, for Latinx founders. And so you do see these specializations. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the the really kind of important point here is this is not... Um, just uh, a kind of a, a act that's around um, doing something good, like the touchy-feely approach, like we need to include everyone because that's the right thing to do. That's obviously really important. People deserve access and there are systemic inequalities and discrimination in the system that need to be you know, made right. But it's actually just a very good business decision to invest in founders who might not look might not speak, might not be exactly the same as all the others, um, or as the same as the general partners that a fund. Why? Because when you think about market opportunity, these founders are able to build products, services that cater to the you know, people that are not being sold to, right? Mm-hmm. So it's actually really good for business. Um, and the, the studies show that actually funds that are focused on female founders Um, A lot of them have higher, you know, return on investment compared to the average. Um, And I do think over time we're going to see more and more of this. One of the really positive trends we're seeing generally with investment is that in terms of the environmental, social and um, kind of, you know, the triple bottom line when we're looking at investing, that is becoming more and more mainstream and platforms such as ETHIC or REPUBLIC, which are giving access to large um, investors or the average investor to invest in kind of diverse founders um, or in companies that are caring about particular social environmental missions is making it more and more mainstream. I think that the problems are not gonna be fixed overnight because they're systemic at a number of levels. And with startups, we need to look at not only who are we funding, who are starting companies and who are we funding, who are they hiring Um, But also at an investment level, who has access to capital? Mm -hmm. Who who is actually making the check-writing decisions? And where are they getting their money? Because that dictates who then gets the money downstream, right? And so it's kind of upstream. We need to look just as much downstream. Um, I do think that we will see some positive shifts but it takes a lot of consciousness and a lot of intentionality because otherwise these problems will continue to perpetuate
0: yeah that's that's a great answer and i think definitely gives us hope for the future perhaps if the movement continues and this this, this momentum continues so Absolutely. last uh, last question you know this this podcast series is called dream reality so right my question to you is how do you see the future evolving in a dream world? So everything being perfect, the stars aligning. How would you like to see both, you know, whether it be from an entrepreneurial space, a capital VC space or a coaching perspective, how would you like to see that evolve in a dream ideal case? And then, you know, maybe dial it back. How do you see the reality playing out?
1: Yeah love this, love the idea of reimagining the future. I think one of the things that drew me to coaching itself is it's all about helping an individual imagine what they want their life or career to be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm certainly an eternal optimist. Um, When it comes to coaching, what I would love to see, and I think in terms of thinking big, is that coaching becomes mainstream. It's just a you know, thinking about your mental fitness will be as obvious as thinking about your physical fitness. Mm -hmm. There's not a question as to whether we should eat well, exercise, get our heart rate up. In the same way, we won't be questioning whether we need to check in with our emotions, whether we need to keep our minds fit. Um, It will just be such an obvious link to well-being and performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And that coaching won't be seen as this inaccessible elite thing or as remedial, it will be available to anyone interested in growing themselves, mm-hmm. in bringing the best versions out of themselves, and having a guide or confidant to, to have you know to be alongside them in that journey. Mm-hmm. I think with uh, startups and entrepreneurship, I'm a big fan of seeing entrepreneurship as um, a way of living to bring the entrepreneurial approach to our life, which means to um, experiment to be not fixed in one way of living, whether it's the way we work or the way we live, the way we think about what success means, to try things, to see what feels right. And really my hope is to bring more humanity into our lives, into our organizations, into our communities and into our kind of societies more broadly. Um, The pandemic has really shown us that when you take the, the kind of busy distractions away and just the general busyness of life away, we're left with real questions about what matters to us and how do we want to show up for our lives and for the world. Um, And that's a really exciting opportunity to lead with the kind of that human question first, which I think has been lost in the the kind of very capitalist material society that we've become, Mm -hmm. going back to what is it that makes us human? Um, And that's my hope that we really do bring the humanity back um, and we start there. Now, the reality is that I think that as, you know, societies are opening back up some faster than others, um, there's a real opportunity here to um, not just go back to what was, but to create a new normal. I think we're at an inflection point. It's, it'll be interesting to see which way we go. I think real questions of if we want to give, um, for example, as people go back to work, do we want to give people choice as to whether to come in every day to an office or like, where is the point at which we want to give people choice? And if we're giving our people choice, what does that mean for how we need to adapt as organizations in terms of how we think about inclusion? How do we ensure that if we give people choice, whether to come in or not, that those who elect to stay and work from home, whether because they have child responsibilities, whether because they hadn't been vaccinated or whether because there's other underlying conditions or um, ableism, that we actually create our workplaces in a way that allow for this hybrid um, new normal. Um, So that if someone's online on a call, on a Zoom call, and everyone else is in a meeting room, that that person on Zoom is not left out. Maybe we need to recreate the way that we meet and have meetings. And so there are some really great, interesting questions that await us. And I think the answer as to whether some of these big opportunities will be realized is if we see what's happened, as an opportunity to do things differently rather than simply pausing and waiting to go back to what was.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I really love your passion when you're talking about the dream uh, and hopefully that will become a reality. It's, it's definitely a lovely concept of, um, I personally have been correcting everyone when they start talking about mental health. And I was like, no, we need to be talking about mental fitness and how we can Absolutely. improve our mental fitness rather than the negativity that automatically comes with the terminology around mental health. And- agree and it's, it's, I think we need to be so aware of language and now is the time to be able to change some of that language, but that's a whole yeah. other topic, whole other topic. Listen, thank you so much. Now I did ask for a couple of recommendations. So yes. uh, do you have a book or a podcast that, uh, that you would recommend to us?
1: I do. Um, I'm going to cheat and say that the book and the podcast are one. So I'm a huge fan of Brené Brown's work um, around courageous leadership, vulnerability, shame. And her most recent book, Dare to Lead, is a fantastic book I recommend to clients, Mm -hmm. Um, not only in terms of personal leadership, but organizational leadership. She also has started a podcast last year by the same name, um, where she interviews some incredible leaders across the board. Um, For example, Priya Parker that she interviewed most recently talks about the art of gathering. What does it look like to start to bring people back together? And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. So highly recommend that one.
0: That's, That's a great one. I think I'll definitely have to check out her podcast and uh and a song that you know if you're just having one of those days what perks you up
1: (laughs) this is a very difficult question because i I, am
0: right but it's really good (laughs) we've had some totally random answers which make it so much better
1: no totally well look i'm a fan of gut instinct, so the moment i saw that question um the first song that came into my mind was happy by pharrell williams um, and the reason for that is I, I just, um, the first time I saw that video, interestingly, was with a video clip that was not the original, but was of Harvard Kennedy School students dancing in the hallways oh, to yeah. that song. And it was the first video I saw before I went off to, to venture at grad, graduate school, which, you know, two of the best years of my life. Yeah. And so I have this image of you know, all my friends and colleagues from all around the world coming together and kind of dancing and being hopeful. And that's, um, I think a spirit that is a, a really important one right now. When sometimes, you know, our days can feel a bit like Groundhog Day or that mm-hmm. kind of the term around languishing, which yeah. um, I know is the term that's been <laughs> coined for 2021. So, uh, my hope is that we can all put on happy and dance a little, you know, dance a little dance.
0: Oh, fabulous! Great choice. Great choice. Listen, thank you so much for joining me today. I think there's You're some awesome. great takeaways there about how we should think about things and frame them and the future of how, you know, how things are going to evolve in the next few years, both from a coaching perspective and a VC perspective. I think you've definitely brought us hope today that there's, there's some light that this momentum is going to continue. And yeah, I just, I'm very, very thankful for your time today. And it's been a great conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Alison. Really a pleasure to be on the podcast and wish everyone well. Thank you.